Our reading today is from Luke 24, verses 13 to 35. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognising him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. What's more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, it's nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognised him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scripture to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it's true the Lord has risen, he's appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognised by them when he broke the bread. Thanks, Samantha, so much for reading. Uh, welcome. Uh, if you've joined us since we started, it's great to uh, see you all this Tuesday lunchtime. Let's pray now as we come to God's word together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we pray by your Holy Spirit, please open the scriptures to us today that our hearts might burn with the knowledge of who you are and all that you've done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this is uh, the penultimate in our Meals with Jesus series, and each meal has taught us something about who Jesus is and what he came to do. 
And this episode is, strictly speaking, it's actually a walk in a meal. In fact, it's mainly a walk and there's a meal at the end. And it features these two people who were part of the wider group of Jesus' followers, one of whom is named as Cleopas. And when we first meet them in verse 13, at the beginning of our passage, they're on their way from Jerusalem to a village called Emmaus. And it's the third day after Jesus has been crucified. They've been there in Jerusalem as witnesses of all that's happened. Perhaps Emmaus is their hometown and they're walking home. What we're going to do just for a few minutes now is join them on this walk and uh, at this meal and see what we can learn from their encounter with Jesus. And the first thing I'd love us to notice uh, from the passage is that actually at the beginning they didn't know about the resurrection of Jesus. Verses 13 to 17 there they are, they're walking along this road, deep in conversation. It's that, it's that kind of walk um, that you have when you're having such an intense chat with someone that you're not paying any attention to how far or how fast you're walking. And you can easily end up somewhere completely where you're not intending to go. It's that kind of intense chat. And then uh, the risen Jesus, he, he comes up alongside them and joins them on their walk and asks them what they're talking about. And uh, then end of verse 17... This question that he asks, I mean, it literally stops them in their tracks. Luke records that their faces are utterly downcast. They just stop because they're reminded of the, again of all that's happened. They're absolutely shattered by what's happened in Jerusalem. Their world's fallen apart. And this question just brings it all home to them again. But why are they so downcast? Well, we get the answer in, in verses 19 to 21. Jesus of Nazareth was powerful uh, in word and deed before the people. He was a prophet and we had hoped that he was going to redeem Israel. But he was sentenced to death and crucified. All, clearly all their hopes that they had for him at this stage died with him. They were living without any hope of his resurrection or their own resurrection. There was a cover story um, by Jeremy Clarkson in the Sunday Times magazine um, last Easter. Uh, and it was all about how he was trying to come to terms with his own mortality and, and his lack of hope for any life beyond this one. And at one point in the piece, he writes this. It's not that I believe that I'm going to a better place. I don't. I know I'm going to be in a hole where I shall rot. And I shall be there forever or at least until a property developer decides he needs the graveyard for a new housing estate, and then I'll be landfill. Now, I was really struck by the, by the honesty and the sadness of, uh, of these words. This is what it's like to live without the resurrection of Christ. And I wonder whether that's, that's the same for some of us here today, that, that those words of Clarkson just slightly resonate. Or perhaps we might say, well, I'm just not really sure either way. You know, we've got this strong human instinct that there must be more than this life, but maybe is it just wishful thinking? Well, if that's you in any way, I've got good news for you this Tuesday lunchtime. There is ample evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ if we're prepared to stop and take a look. And there's not time for me to run through it all today but I thought we'd just notice briefly what just gets mentioned in this passage. 
alone by, in terms of resurrection evidence. And the first is, in verses 22 and 24, Cleopas mentions the empty tomb. The women who went to the tomb earlier that day and the disciples who went after them all came back reporting an empty tomb. Now, for Cleopas and these disciples at this stage, they've only just heard the news. So at this stage, for them, there's a possibility of, uh, maybe someone's stolen the body, maybe it's been moved, maybe there's been some mistake. But as time goes on after this, the days go into weeks and months and years, but particularly those first weeks and months, uh, the more significant this evidence of the empty tomb becomes. Because... Just imagine how easy it would have been for the authorities at the time, all-powerful, to sort this out. There was this pathetic little band of followers of Jesus of Nazareth claiming that there was an empty tomb. How easy it would have been to uh, produce a body and scotch the whole thing. They could have, you know, if they were trying to hide the body somewhere, how easy it would have been to round them up and just put the whole thing to bed. But they never did. So there's the empty tomb. Secondly, there's the evidence of the the actual appearances of Jesus. In the New Testament as a whole, we get 11 of these. uh, Different times, different places, different groups of people. Uh, Here, Luke just picks up on this encounter that Cleopas and his friend have with Jesus. And it's interesting, just that, the fact that Luke names this individual, Cleopas. Right back at the beginning of Luke's account, he makes a big deal at the beginning that he's, he's spoken to all the high eyewitnesses. He's done, he's done a careful uh, historical uh, account. And Luke wrote the Gospel approximately 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. In other words, he's not embarrassed to actually name people who, um, who were claims eyewitnesses of the resurrection. He names them and says effectively inviting the sceptic or the person who wants to find out more, go and talk to some of these people. They were, they were there. It, it, it's not just sort of unnamed people. And this is, that's consistent throughout the Gospels. So you see that the New Testament doesn't present the resurrection of Jesus as a sort of nice um, spiritual idea for wishful thinkers. But actually, as historical fact, for everybody there to be investigated. And at this moment in the narrative, Cleopas and his friend don't know about Jesus' resurrection. And later in the passage, all that was about to change. Their minds were changed by the evidence. And ours can be too, if we take the time to investigate. So they were living without the resurrection at that stage. Secondly, Cleopas and his friend also, they were living without the Saviour. They didn't know about the Saviour either. Because you'll see, in verses 19 and 20, if you have a look, Cleopas describes Jesus as a prophet, mighty in deed and word, and then listen again to that despair in verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Now, this word redeem is vital here. We're, we're more used now to it having a kind of religious meaning to it, redeeming for sins. But in Jesus' time, it, it actually had a more um, mainstream political and economic meaning that was much more commonly used for, which was, was, was liberation for political or economic slavery, to redeem someone from slavery. And we have to remember that Israel was under occupation and oppression from a foreign power, from, from Rome. 
And so Cleopas and his friends thought Jesus had come to redeem them from that slavery, from political and economic slavery as the Messiah. But the message of the whole Bible and the message of Jesus is that whatever our political or our economic circumstances, Cleopas and us are slaves to something even deeper than that. We are actually slaves to ourselves and our own sinful nature. We're we're slaves essentially to trying to find our fulfilment somewhere, anywhere, apart from God. It might be money and comfort, it might be good health, it might be political success, it might be relationships, whatever it is. And all those things are good in themselves and worth striving for. But we turn these good things, to coin a phrase, into God things. We end up worshipping them. And because they're not actually God, those things, none of them can actually satisfy. They end up, like all addiction, demanding more and more and more from us. And actually, all those things end up enslaving us. We become enslaved to them as kind of mini-gods. And so Jesus needs to teach Cleopas and his friend about a deeper slavery and a deeper redemption. And so then, in verses 26 and 27, he gives Cleopas and his friend what what must have been one of the most amazing Bible studies that's ever taken place. And he explains that the Bible actually is not about us and what we must do to redeem ourselves. It's about him and what he has done as our Redeemer. For example, he he would have taken them back to the beginning of the Bible. He would have shown them how he is the true Adam who did obey in the garden and whose obedience is given to those who trust in him. That he, Jesus, is actually the true Abraham in whom all the people of the world are blessed by faith. He could have shown them how he is the true Passover lamb who takes away the sins of the world. How he's the true Moses, who mediates a new covenant of his own obedience, not the people's obedience, and sacrifice for our sins. He could have shown them how he's the true priest, who entered not just the Holy of Holies in the temple, but into heaven itself to bring us near to God. He could have shown them how he's the true king, whose kingdom is perfectly just and eternal, unlike those Old Testament kings, how he's the true prophet, God's final revelation to us. How he's the true suffering servant who Isaiah talks about, who bore the sin of many and yet lives again to make many righteous. He could have done, he could have gone through all those things and I'm sure he did. And in verse 21, Cleopas and his friend, you can see that they knew that Jesus had died. They were despairing about it. But Jesus then showed them from the whole of the Bible, from the Old Testament, that he had to die. Only he could redeem them from this slavery to sin. That that famous Easter hymn, There is a Green Hill Far Away, captures it beautifully. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. So up to this point, Cleopas and his friend, they didn't know about the risen Jesus, and they didn't know about him as the saviour either. 
So what changed their minds? Well, two things, I think, we see in the passage. The first is, of course, they did actually encounter the risen Jesus in person, and they finally realise who he is. Verse 31 gives us that light bulb moment when they suddenly realise it's actually Jesus sitting in front of them. But, I hear you say, well, that's all very well. It's easy for them to believe. You know, they got to meet him in person. What about us, 2,000 years later? But I wonder if belief is as simple as that. In-person evidence doesn't always automatically convert into belief. After all, think of all those people who actually met Jesus when he was there in person, who didn't believe in him. In fact, many of them ended up being outright opposed to him and putting him to death. Belief doesn't automatically follow from evidence. Us human beings are not pure, objective, reasoning machines. We know that in politics, don't we? We are a whole complexity of desires and emotions too, which play havoc with our rational decision-making. Furthermore, we may have not been there in person, but we do have this eyewitness evidence recorded for us that Luke makes such a meal of. And so much of the rest of our lives are based on trusting the evidence of others in order to make our decisions. You can't make every single decision in life based on in-person evidence. For example, very few of us will get the chance of a three-hour one-to-one Q&A, for example, with all the party leaders before the next election. Well, that's not going to stop us deciding on who we vote for, is it? So the, the, the evidence of the resurrection is there to be investigated if we want to. But there's a second factor in this story that convinces these two that Jesus is this risen Saviour. And I think it's given more emphasis than the, than the first one, than their actual meeting him in person. It's the fact that Jesus explains to them from all the scriptures that he's the risen Saviour. Luke reports it two times. And the first is in verses 25 to 27. I don't know about you, but having listened to the doubts of Cleopas and his friends up to that point, if I was Jesus, I would have been tempted to go, ta-da, you know, it's me, Jesus, I'm here, I'm risen, here I am, despite your doubts. But interestingly, he doesn't do that, does he? Instead, he gives them a Bible study on how all the scriptures are about him as the redeeming saviour. They should have been expecting this redeeming risen saviour. And again, I think it's striking, verse 32, when they finally recognised him, they don't say to each other, you know what, I, I knew, I kind of knew it was him all along. He had this sort of special presence about him when we were walking along. No, they don't say that. They actually hark back to the fact that when he opened the scriptures to them, that was when their hearts were burning within them as they heard from the whole Bible that it was not a rule book, but instead a rescue story. So can I, can I pose a question to you as we close? If you wouldn't call yourself a Christian here today, are you waiting for a voice from heaven or some kind of ecstatic experience before you become a Christian? Because this account tells us we don't need it. Actually, all we need is, is the Bible. Even when Jesus was there in person with these two, he took them to the Bible. And if you're already a Christian here today and you're feeling spiritually dry, here's a thought. At the beginning of this year, 
and I preach this very much to myself, by the way, will we read these scriptures day by day and actually allow God to set our hearts on fire with the lengths and breadths and heights and depths of this love of the risen Saviour? Will we allow God to do that? In 1601, Caravaggio painted a famous depiction of this supper at Emmaus. And it now it hangs in the National Gallery. It's, it's an awesome painting. Perhaps you know it. And it, it depicts this moment in verse 31 when the two disciples recognise who their companion is. And one of the disciples is, is depicted, it's kind of literally bursting out of his chair in, in joy at this moment. And the other one is kind of throwing open his arms wide in wonder. And Caravaggio, he painted this painting in such a way that it, it also invites us, the, the viewer, into the painting. Because there's this great, he leaves a great space at the table for us to join the risen saviour at the table. So here's a, here's a question to finish with at the end is, Will we, will you let the scriptures, let God through the scriptures take you there to that table in 2024? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we we pray today and throughout the coming uh, weeks and months, please show us this Jesus as the promised risen saviour from all the scriptures. Please humble us to see that we, we need redeeming by him. And please help us to join him at the table. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.